From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Digital banks are set to treble their customer numbers in 2020 Singapore starts accepting their first applications for digital banks And LinkedIn announces its top 25 startups of 2019 You might recognise some of the names All this and more on today's show Welcome to episode 355 of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, David Breer. How are we doing today, David? Super, super good week, I have to say. Um, I was over in Venice, which was kind of cool. So I've been doing a a keynote over there for MasterCard this week. Uh, So me and Jason had a nice romantic stroll through St. Mark's Square at 1am last night. No need to show off. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) You did ask. (laughs) As always, we are not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests. First up, making their new show debuts, we have Joe Cross, who is in global marketing and PR at TransferWise. How are you today, Joe? Very well. Thank you very much for having me. What an honour. Thank you very much for coming. And we're joined by Rona Ruthen, Customer Operations Director at Monzo Bank. Happy to be here. I can't believe it's taken so long to get you here, actually. <laughs> but I've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, making a return appearance is Wincy Wong, Head of Rose Review Implementation at RBS. How are you today, Wincy? Hi, really well. Excellent. So let's get on with the show. Actually, before we get started, Wincy, could you tell us what the Rose Review is? Because it only launched in March of this year. And I'm just thinking you were on last time before that happened, weren't you? Yes. So Elson Rose is our CEO of our corporate and commercial bank for um, RBS and NetWest. And she was literally sat next to Robert Jenrick, who was then Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury at HM Treasury last year. And they talked about the issue of female entrepreneurs. We are the biggest bank for SMEs in the UK. And uh, there has been a lot of talk about the issue, but no one who had ever really just done um, quite a large report on it. So Alison took up the challenge. We got the report written and it was launched in March, as you said, on International Women's Day. And we were really keen to make sure that it was one of those reports that was different, that it didn't just get written and get sat on a shelf somewhere. We really wanted to make sure that it had longevity and that it would actually make a change. Some of the findings of the report were quite shocking. They were one only one in three entrepreneurs in the UK are female. And if we were to allow women to start, scale, and sustain their businesses at the same rate as men, we would unlock an additional £250 billion to the UK economy. And in a government and country where there isn't that much slack. This is a huge, huge amount of money. Um, so together with um, HM Treasury and also now with our business Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, I was brought in to lead the implementation of the initiatives. So there are eight initiatives that were outlined in the report. They roughly fall into three categories, which is around access to finance for female entrepreneurs, helping female entrepreneurs with family care responsibilities, and then to look at how do we uh, support them through mentoring, education, and networks. Sounds really exciting. I look forward to uh, to seeing more of the outcomes. Yes. I would say if Alison's putting a name to it, it's going to do stuff. Like this is not just a, oh, you know, yes. given we've had her on the <laughs> podcast a bunch before and I've spent a bunch of time with her. If she puts mm-hmm. her name to something, it's going to happen. 
And there has certainly been a lot of doing. <laughs> I, will, I will definitely say that. Um, certainly, probably more recently, we, we had great success where we were able to launch our Investing in Women code. And that was at Downing Street. That was um, in July where we got um, some of the major banks. So we have ourselves, we have Barclays, we have Lloyd's, Metro, Nationwide, NTSB, and Santander as well, all signed up to an Investing in Women code, which has three aspects to it, first of which is assigning someone senior to look after it. Second one, which is interesting, is disclosing data about how much each of us are investing in women. Uh, Last but not least is also to agree to adopt best practices when it comes to investing in women. So it has been hugely exciting, certainly lots going on and lots more to come as well over the coming months. So first up today, we have a story uh, that was reported in Finextra that digital banks are on track to treble customers next year, but profits remain elusive. We've not heard that before. UK digital banks such as Revolut, Starling, Tandem, Monzo and N26 are set to experience massive growth over the next year, amassing 35 million customers around the world. Digital banks operate in the UK now claim 13 million customers in Europe. 5 million new accounts opened in the first six months of 2019. Um, Accenture predicts this customer growth is set to increase over the next year as digital banks win customers both in the UK and in new markets such as the US. I feel like I have to throw this straight to Rona. Hi. <laughs> Any thoughts? Well, hopefully this isn't, isn't too mean, but I read it and my first question was, what is news about this? Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, I can't find the actual report. Um, and as a researcher, it really annoys me that I cannot find anything to back any of these statements up big big consultancy states bleeding obvious like uh, it's uh, an interesting one right was wondering the same thing what is the research who are all the fintechs and all the banks that that wasn't clear and are we growing yes are we all profitable not yet but we all knew that before Mm. so i think what this will be is if you kind of think about who the customer base that they will be aiming this at it will be big banks be scared you know, essentially what this is, is if you're not scared by Monzo taking your customers or Tandem taking your customers or whoever, then actually this is going to get bigger and this problem is going to get more scary. If you're so, not scared, where have you been? Well, but, but even still, I think a lot of the organizations think, you know, not just that there's customers being created, but actually the, that it's not hampering their profitability yet. So it's that old thing that we've sort of said before. It's where they'll never get licenses. Oh, they've got licenses. They'll never acquire customers. Oh, God, they've got customers. Like, they'll never go international. Oh, God, they've gone international. Like, and now it's like they'll never make money. And they uh, don't take as many deposits as the incumbents, right? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, lots of good numbers coming out around, you know, Monzo's customer numbers or Revolut's numbers or whatever. And I think it's now that this type of thing will make – if you're the CEO of a big bank, you'll read this and go – crap, we probably have to do something, which is probably why Accenture wrote it in the first place. But to Sarah's point, like, they probably should have known by now. Yeah, probably. You're right. I mean, the, the, the number, you know, 35 million, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, was that, is that just in the UK? That, <laughs> that would have been surprising. But, <laughs> out uh, of, what, yeah, 36 exactly. million? That something would be like impressive. That, yeah. Impressive market share goals there. I kind of agree. This is something that, I guess, if you've been in the industry, certainly as a VC, you know, you knew what you were getting into with these these neobanks. And uh, it's just really a question of long gaming. You know, Tom and every neobank CEO has always been completely clear about that. Uh, It's going to be really interesting to see how this pans out is, you know, the traditional bank model was very much, you know, give customers free banking and then earn the revenue back by selling them other products. 
sometimes transparently, sometimes intransparently. So the thing that we definitely still need to find out, I think, is how you know, does that model work when every single fee is totally transparent and when you know banks aren't able to screw customers on FX, says the guy from Transferwise. <laughs> Kel Surprise. You, would, but, you yeah. would say that. But, yeah, exactly. But um, <laughs> This is not a marketing is, advert for no, Transferwise. No, totally. I promise that was the last one. <laughs> um, but yeah, but you know, the point is that you know, the model still needs to sort of find its new equilibrium, I guess, yeah. with customers being way more um, aware of what they're actually paying and the banks not having to pay for the old physical branches and all that stuff, which was obviously a huge cost base. So perhaps actually they can be more transparent and charge less if it's a digital only. I think we're like mid the second movie. We're like Empire Strikes Back right now, right? Like the to, to your point, everybody gets this now. And actually like, you know, RBS, you're investing in bow, in metal, in sort of many other sort of challenges. And it's not just you guys, but many other organizations are, are creating startups to almost take advantage of everything that a startup can do, but with the investment potential and the big brand that kind of comes with it. So, I mean, the, the dynamic, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. In the next few years are going to be fascinating. There's yeah. some, there's some, I, what I really want to know, though, is these numbers that they've published, right? Digital challenges have a substantial you love number numbers, of cost. Don't you? Of course I do. Yeah. I'm, an, I'm an analyst, I'm a researcher. Like, if you're going to publish a number, you need to tell me what it is and how you got that. Rowan is completely nodding and agreeing with me. Absolutely. So this, this when kind she of does like, that voice, I just get scared. The, <laughs> the 20 to 50 pounds, the digital challenges have a substantially lower cost to serve than incumbents of 20 to 50 pounds and lower in some cases per account compared to 170 pounds. Deposit balances for challenges have increased from 70 to 350 pounds per customer. Uh, for 9,000 is still the average for incumbents. Those numbers mean nothing without context. And it just drives me mad unless you're in a big bank and you know your own numbers. This is not helpful to anybody else. 9,000 over what period of time? A lifetime of a customer? We don't have the same lifetime as, yeah. a, as RBS or Barclays or anyone else, right? So what are we comparing? So, so I think the deposits one is is hard to compare apples and apples. I think the cost to serve the cost of a current account is such a specific thing. So when I was back at the bank, but actually when we were, when I was at Gartner, this is something people would obsess over. Oh, they do. Absolutely um, obsess over it. And it was always somewhere between about 180 and 230 pounds, depending on which organization you were working with. And actually, uh, you know, I know Tom's sort of come out and said somewhere between five and 10 pounds now to run a current account, which is pretty impressive. And this is, again, when it comes to the things that will make the CEO of a big bank be scared, it's that because the thing that scares them is not their capex budget being spent on innovation stuff it's the opex in the back office that's costing you like there's one organization we went and visited recently it was nine billion dollars to run the their operation that it cost them each year that's the thing that keeps ceos up at night i think not the you know freezing a card or like that stuff is interesting and they believe that they can copy that stuff it's the fact that their operation costs infinity more than it does a challenge the other thing um, with the you know the front loading of so much of that cost when you're in high growth mode, you know, the cost of literally is down to shipping the card and down to making sure that the customer su- support service is so good that you can you as a customer believe yes this is the future of banking. It's very expensive and it's all front loaded. So then it comes down to how basically how how willing are your VCs essentially to to play the long game on this? Yeah, okay. And there have been I mean I don't know whether you guys remember Bank Simple in the US mm. who. We all know about Bank Simple. <laughs> no, it was an unfortunate timing in that you know the, that you know long game investor wasn't forthcoming at the point when they needed it and yeah. ended up being sold to a to a traditional bank BBVA. So, yeah. so I'm hoping that doesn't happen again. I agree. Well, from banks that already exist to perhaps some new banks, and I'm sure we've written about in another Accenture report in five years' time. Singapore is to accept first digital bank applications again from Finextra. 
So two months after announcing plans to issue digital banking licenses, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, known as MAS, is set to accept the first applications. So applications can be sent in uh, before December the 31st, and at least one of the parties must be able to show a track record of three or more years operating in a technology or e-commerce project. That makes it more stringent than a lot of the other new licensing regimes we've seen, even in Asia, actually. The regulator is also looking for innovative use of technology to serve customer needs, and this is interesting, reach under the served sections of the Singaporean market. Other criteria that we considered in the applications include the ability to manage a prudent and sustainable, so there we go back to that idea of business models and, and balancing the books, um, digital banking businesses. No more than five licenses will be awarded this year, two for full digital banks and three for wholesale digital banks. Again, I think from my perspective, what's interesting here is all these extra criteria that are creeping into these, um, these new licensing schemes, but... Anybody else have thoughts off the back on this? I mean, it's super interesting, you know, taking the lead from the FCA and then the lead from HKMA. Like, this is almost the playbook now for how do you increase competition within a marketplace of traditionally big incumbent players who have got all of the customers and got all of the opportunity. So, you know, well done to Maz to kind of uh, go to this one. Like you say, it is interesting that actually each time somebody does this, they make it slightly more specific. Like these guys are clearly looking for certain types of organizations doing certain types of things. It was interesting to see that actually they're looking at at least, you know, one of the partners in this space. You know, I, I wonder if we're going to see a similar play out here of what we did with uh, Hong Kong, where big technology companies are going to be the people who ride on this first. Yeah, Singapore definitely making moves to become the real APAC fintech hub. And we have an operation over there. And we were quite amazed by how sort of lenient or not so much lenient but how uh, willing to talk and adjust their policies the government was with uh, so one specific example was they had a hard requirement that customers needed to be physically verified physically in a physical branch um, that was a lot of physically yeah exactly well it's, you know, Very it's a real pain <laughs> and we said well this doesn't really work if you're a if you're an online business it's you know your regulations are clearly out of date and I listened and we worked with them and, you know, a year later they changed the regulation. It was it was pretty quick considering how long some other governments around the world are taking to listen to fintech. I, th- I think to, to pick up on David's point there as well uh, and yours as well, what we saw was the FCA tried it and it seemed to work and other people have sort of sat back and watched and listened and learned and you've got this fast follower. I, I would argue that the Australian regulator is doing something similar. It's doing things that you can recognise um, within the UK regulatory regime but are, are subtly different and subtly different to the point where they are I would say, you know, until we see otherwise improved. Yeah. Wincy, Runa, did you want to... Well, I think it's great that regulators are learning from each other, right? And where we, we all think that the UK regulators are actually uh, forward-looking and very open and progressive, and that's great. And if others can learn from it and adapt to other markets quickly, that's amazing, right? It's good for customers, good for us. You know, I'm, I'm, this is not a direct question. Like, are you planning to move to Singapore? But generally speaking, when you're when you're but if you if you are but if, you, if you are now if you are, please if, tell you are me now. if you are now nod nod because they um, won't say oh okay that's what, interesting. What, what I was going to say was presumably if you now know and actually maybe the question is more proper Joe you now know the regulator is open to these ideas. You as a UK business think oh okay well maybe maybe our lives will be a bit easier if we decide to scale there. So if you're looking at alternative markets, maybe you look to markets where the regulators either have a similar approach to the UK or seem to have listened and learned. Is that something you take into account? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's one of the biggest factors is exactly that, how how sort of fintech ready is the government and the ecosystem? Because if they're not, it's really hard. For, for me, I think it's really interesting how they first move, move very quickly to, to kind of adopt this. I think that's great. But then at the same time, they put kind of a lot of brakes along it, kind of like, ooh, you know, we want to try this, but let's not 
scoot too fast, mm. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. We were talking about electric scooters before. And <laughs> the lack of limiters um, that can, or, or from our perspective, maybe uh, lack of limits. I think it's. Um, I think it's interesting. We we often. Um, I think it was like 185 or 184 we, where we had Samart Walport on the podcast, uh, who talked about the origins of all of the sandboxes that are actually created, and it was from the healthcare industry. So it was about actually how can you test drugs without pushing them out into the entirety of the population and maybe kill everybody. To your point, actually, they're trying to put some of these speed bumps in to, you know, isolate the amount of customers that they can open these things to or, you know, the types of industries that they really want to be kind of impacted without potentially risking the whole financial market. And it it makes sense, you know, the Mm -hmm. FCA sort of made it up as they went along to a certain degree as much as the regulators can and now each time somebody's done it they've improved it really you know it'd be it's interesting that we're seeing a trend of looking at nobody in the room but people moving to the US when actually Hong Kong Singapore Australia are actually emulating more the regulatory environment here than the US is to a certain degree. Yeah, but the, the US is so much a bigger market than all those three combined and tripled, I would imagine, which is possibly what's inspired those decisions. Sorry, Wincy, did you want to say something and then I cut you no, up? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, uh, well, it kind of makes sense to move to the US market first, almost before Asia, because the customer behaviours are different. And I think there is probably a bit more similarity if you started in Europe to move to the US before you move to APAC because just because of the nature of how those countries and uh, operate, how quickly as well the customers are quick to adopt and then also throw away things. I think as well. I think I mean if you're so from our perspective, our Singapore hub isn't serving Singaporean customers only. It's APAC hub, but yeah, if you were launching a like you know Monzo just in Singapore, for example, there's yeah, much smaller market in the US, and then. When we launched in the US for TransferWise, you know, the state, it's literally a state level license that you have to get. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. So you have to go and get a license for states that you're probably not going to have very many customers in. So it's a a trade off. So to go to your your customer behavior point, the companies that are applying, so you've got Grab, which it says online taxi firm, but Grab does so much Mm. more than online taxi firm. It it does. Very poor journalism. Sorry? Very, very poor journalism. But my point was going to be that they're more like some of the companies you see coming out of maybe China that, that, that do all sorts of different services from one app. Um, and then you've got a local telco, Singtel. Again, particularly if you look to India, but also in, in that part of the world, you see telcos offering you much, much more than just, you know, a phone contract. And then a peer-to-peer lender, which I don't know. Uh, Validus Capital, it's called. My guess would be that, that also they probably have that, that multi-party approach. Sorry, David, were you going to jump in there? Um, I, I think all of these, though, are gateways to, like, the region rather than, like, if I look at Singapore or, I mean, Hong Kong particularly, the licensing in Hong Kong wasn't really just about Hong Kong. It's about actually mainland China. And actually, you know, while there's only, what, 9, 10 million people in Hong Kong, there, there seems to be infinity people in China as far as I can tell. So actually being able to kind of access those bases would, you know, that's the opportunity, I think, in terms of those those regions. You know? Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess that, that's to Joe's point as well. Like Singapore gives you access not only to the Asian markets, but also to well, the APAC markets, isn't it? You know, Australia and New Zealand and, as well. Uh, uh, just so I'm clear, you want us to go to the US before we go to Australia, is that right? Or, uh, or do you <laughs> I, want APAC? I, 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 I think we Moving us on. So lenders accuse Google of overstepping the mark with ban on payday loan apps. This is from The Telegraph. So Google's decision to wipe 
deceptive and exploitative payday loans from the Android operating system have been met with criticism from short-term lenders. Google warned app developers in an email that loans that require repayment in full in 60 days or fewer, also referred to as paycheck advances or short-term loans, will soon be banned from their app stores. The move was criticised by the UK's Consumer Finance Association, who said it's disappointing to see Google take the decision to ban short-term loan apps. It doesn't seem to reflect the improved regulation and protection here in the UK. Then the next quote, which is from the same organisation, we are not surprised because it does reflect an approach where Google believes it knows best. <laughs> which which I, I very much enjoyed. And, 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 a bit personal. Yeah, I, I wonder what happened there. Um, yeah, it does sound like this previous. Yeah. It, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would say that, wouldn't they? What do we think of this one? So actually, I, um, as a bank, we're really concerned about financial exclusion. And it's also something that the government and Treasury have been talking quite a lot about. It's, it's quite a hot topic at the moment. There are areas of the country that don't have access to finance and therefore turn to other alternative means in order to get into debt. What was clear is uh, we, we did run a hackathon back in June looking at this specific issue. So we did have quite a lot of research and, and things around the issue. One of the things that we did see is that when the FCA and when the regulators did introduce stricter and tougher laws around the payday lending market, there was a genuine improvement in the livelihoods of those people. They were able to repay their debts. There were a lot less calls going into citizens' advice and a lot of things. So the regulation did happen. However, in that same bit of research that citizens' advice does, they also found that, however, in the areas where there is less regulation or little or no regulation, they've seen conditions go worse. So people are getting themselves into debt and they're staying in there, particularly in the doorstep loan market, which is, I know, uh, admittedly a bit different from what Google is <laughs> working on, where people show up at your door to collect their payments, um, maybe with or without other things. Um, and what I would say that in that situation, that is Google taking a stand to say that, you know, this is not right. This is not something we support and we want to help and to do their bit in terms of trying to regulate, whether or not they've done the right level, not clear, but that is, uh, I think, not necessarily a bad move. I completely agree with that. I think we criticize companies like Facebook and Twitter for not doing enough sometimes. And so when a company actually takes a stand, we now criticize them when they do something. So I agree we may not know if it's the exact right level, but the fact that they're taking a stand, I'm very happy with. I think it's it's hard, isn't it? Like, do we want our search engines to tell us what's right and what's wrong? Because arguably what's right and what's wrong is like, very local. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean local in the sense of like where I live in Norfolk, like local. I mean more like actually, you know, being in a situation where government on government should be making the decisions, I think, in terms of the regulator should be making the decisions on what is acceptable within the regulatory framework of that country, not Google. So the interesting thing is that peer-to-peer lending is banned from this as well. So peer-to-peer lenders are affected. Now, peer-to-peer lending is explicitly regulated in the UK. They have their own regulatory regime. So if I was the FCA, I'd be going, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, to very much your point. Like We I, got this, guys. Yeah. yeah. I feel like 
I feel like I can see both sides of this. Google are, are damned if they do and damned if they don't because, because as we said, they've, they've taken a stand, but at the same time, it's not necessarily the stand that some of us want them to take. I think what's interesting for me is that in the US, we've seen kind of an emergent recently of a particular type of fintech that worked with your employer to sort of do almost exactly this, to give you either a loan or a drawdown on your paycheck that is explicitly designed to be paid back when you get paid, sort of like the definition of a payday loan. And a lot of those fintechs are being heralded as being great for financial inclusion. So it's a little bit mixed messages from my perspective. Yeah, the underlying problem that people don't have enough money saved up. And I've read some crazy stats about how much, what percent of the population just have no savings or, you know, literally um, are absolutely genuinely screwed if they lose their job or, you know, get a bill they didn't expect. So the payday loan is sort of a plaster over that. And then, you know, there's, there's loads of apps like the ones you're into in the US and here uh, guys like Plum and those sort of, you know, how you manage your money throughout the month and helping you be, be smarter with your money. Those sorts of things, that's going to help more. So perhaps Google should give cheaper ads to those, those solutions, you know, instead oh, of uh, just banning one, idea. you know, a little give and take. That would be nice. <laughs> My gut feeling when I read this story, my first impression is very much like, I don't want Google telling me what I can and can't see. But that's my kind of instinct to it, because I trust the regulator and I don't trust Google. But what I'm just wondering is if that's like, because I spend so much time with the regulator and I've never met anybody from Google, I'm biased. I think to your point though, Rona, it's like, actually, we do bash Facebook for like fake news. Like, why don't they handle this? Why don't they deal with it? Like, Mm. I voted Trump because they said I should, you know, like all of those things that I hear people say. It is a hard one, isn't it? We want them to do something about it. But at the same time, is it their place, really? I don't know the answer to this. I do like the idea of big companies having social responsibility. And I think introducing friction where vulnerable customers are involved is not a bad thing. There are different ways to do it. Maybe this isn't the best one, but it's not all bad as far as I'm concerned. And also, if you think about it, sometimes uh, I was watching the BBC earlier where Sajid Javid was saying that as the world is being more controlled by technology, criminals are also going into more digital and technology ways in terms of being able to steal money, fraud, etc. And they are wonderful because it's their full-time job at coming up with all kinds of new ways to crack the system and crack what's there. So uh, I think... Criminals are incredibly entrepreneurial. <laughs> They are. Really, and they have so much incentive as well. They are. They do. And um, and, you know, we see them at the bank quite often. What what I would say is, um, as much as we want to, we would love the regulator to be able to respond. They don't necessarily always. They they aren't always able to respond as quickly as these criminals in terms of being able to protect customers. I mean, we as a bank, we do we we take steps to change limits and do things to help protect our customers and their money every day. And in some way, I guess, you you get to a point where because technology is powering so much of it now that Google is taking a stand to say that actually this is, we're not just you know, a search engine anymore. We we actually have some kind of responsibility. I acknowledge that the yeah. power they have. And it, this actually reminds me of a story that we had on the new show um, a few weeks ago, which was actually in Indonesia, they had an absolutely huge problem with ex- exactly the idea of the gentleman who turn up your door, perhaps with something, you know, some some, some tools. Something unsavory. Yeah. <laughs> and actually the Indonesian regulator... Why can't we say baseball bat? I'm very confused. Is it like a... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give people ideas. Okay, sorry. Um, Maybe they don't have baseball bat. 
Maybe they right. have hammers. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Is, is this inclusion gone weird? <laughs> my, my, point, my point was that in Indonesia, the regulator had to make a special effort to clean up lenders who were advertising themselves digitally, you know, advertising themselves via smartphone ads and, um, and social media platforms specific to that region, but were then, you know, causing huge amounts of damage, both financially and actually literally physically to people. Um, and that was a case of the regulator being so far behind they had to then have a special campaign to do it. So surely I, I guess the way around this though is that actually Google should be verifying the people if it, I mean if it's a financial services promotion Google should be verifying the people are actually a financial services organization you know that is particularly in the UK that's quite easy to do because essentially everybody has a uh, a, a registered address they have a registered number and that's the thing that sh- they should be looking at. But, but Zopa is entirely registered in fact is going for a banking license and yet it's not allowed to advertise its peer-to-peer loans. Yeah, and, and, so, and, I guess, and also, and, is everything that's legal a good thing? Is everything that's not legal a good thing? <laughs> oh, okay. And at that point, we're going to go for a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance, and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you follow 11FS and Fintech Insider on Twitter or Instagram, you may have seen a few odd things happening over the last couple of days, aka, well, the branding has kind of vanished and all that remains is minty, minty goodness. Loads of other 11FS people have been changing their profiles over to something super interesting. And while we've had lots of people really interested about what we're doing, we've even had one weird complaint, which is interesting. So sorry, not so sorry, I guess. Um, Guys, if you haven't seen this, everybody seems to think we're building a bank, but that's good to know, but we're not. So keep guessing, please. We've been working on something super, super special over the past year. We can't quite tell you what that is just yet, but stay tuned for some updates. If you want to keep in touch with that, head over to our social channels, follow us if you aren't already, I know you are, and you definitely definitely, definitely won't want to miss the updates over the next couple of weeks. So our next story today is that Lloyds has bought Tesco Bank's mortgage book in a £3.8 billion deal. We got this from the FT. Lloyds Banking Group has agreed to buy the mortgage book after various 
uh, sorry, after a vicious price war, I misread that, led them to abandon the mortgage market. Lloyds will pay a 2.5% premium compared to the loan's outstanding book value, with Tesco's 23,000 customers transferring to Lloyds subsidiary Halifax. Lloyds beat competing bids from rivals Santander and RBS. They said the deal would still produce better returns than issuing new loans in the current market conditions. Tesco, on the other hand, is going to use the sale proceeds for reinvestments in its remaining businesses um, and to lower its funding costs. I believe that's known as doubling down. Thoughts on, on this? I think when you spend $3.8 billion to acquire 23,000 customers and it's better than acquiring new customers, it says about how terrifying the market actually is today. Because essentially what you're in a situation, I think we reported it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, where is it Norway, where we're actually starting to get people to pay people to have mortgages, the rates are getting so bad. You know, it's a it's a funny old world where this is sort of happening. But I guess, you know, mergers of this type in terms of acquiring back books, uh, you know, nothing sort of new, but maybe it's a, a sign that the big organizations are sort of starting to come out of their shell a little bit with the um, the checkbook ready. So I think I have a slightly different take on this. I think that um, if you look at what happened, and it's mentioned in the article with ring fencing, where you basically ended up with a load of UK banks with loads of deposits they had to do something with, and the thing that they decided to do with it was lend to people. That's where you get this kind of price war, because they had these deposits and they had to do something, and the best way to do that was to lend it at a low price to customers. And then you've got people like Tesco going, oh, we can't compete with that, and Lloyd's going, well, we want a piece of that. And at the same time, you've got the current economic conditions in the UK, which are, shall we say, not great. Do you want banks throwing free money at people who are increasingly worse off is sort of my, it's a very, very short version of what I'm saying. Um, But if mortgages are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and the banks are getting into a bidding war to try and get rid of these deposits as as cheaply as possible to lend to as many people as possible, and we're in a situation where it's quite clear that a lot of people in the UK are not going to be better off, let's put it that way, anytime soon, I'm slightly wary of that situation. Flashbacks of 2007? Yeah. <laughs> I may have been working on something recently which looked at the uh, subprime mortgage crisis. But is, is that what we're saying here, though? Because surely from a 3.8 bill investment, Lloyd's Banking Group are going to see dramatic upside on this, right? This is guaranteed revenue. So long as the people don't default on these mortgages, which I'm pretty sure is the foreshadowing of the next financial crisis. Um, I need to touch wood just to talk about that one. But, you know, actually seeing that they're they're basically investing in a return that they should see if defaults are maintained at the same level, right? That's a big if. That's a huge if in today's market. Absolutely huge. That's true, I, I guess. I, I mean, I, I think if anybody is capable at sort of managing these things, it's Lloyd's. Shall we move on? <laughs> um, does anybody else want to comment on the story? Well, what I would say is that I mean, RBS, I know, we were widely um, published uh, to have bid for this book of loans as well. But in the context of everything, we, we uh, talking about 2007, we knew a little bit about that. Um, <laughs> and 2008, <laughs> I, I think as well. Um, and, and having learned quite a lot, we, we are open for acquisitions at the right price that support our strategic objectives. In the context of all of that, I guess the Tesco book, is not large in the context of how much we write. We write about seven billion of mortgages every quarter. So this, in light of that, is um, for one of the large banks. It's kind of, um, you know, it, it, it's something that if it's at the right price and it supports everything else, then it's great. It's to a good have. month. 
That's yes. the thing. Yeah, I agree. exactly. From the other perspective, what do we think about the idea of Tesco going? No, actually, this is this is not necessarily a market we want to go, and we're actually going to narrow our focus. We're going to going to go back to maybe doing what we do best. Where do you think they might be investing that money, or where where perhaps should they, as a large organisation, be investing that money? I mean, I think it's a strength. Like Tesco's alignment as a bank should always been to Tesco customers to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I think actually the the sort of devoid from the initial JV with RBS actually to to move to an independent organization, it always felt strange to go into mortgages and that type of thing. It felt more akin to where co-op tried to go, which was sort of community focused um, without really ever tethering itself properly to Tesco, the retailer. So if they start moving more into the credit cards and the current account space, that feels probably much more akin to transactional kind of relationships that people actually have with Tesco. Well, to the best of my knowledge, Tesco don't actually have a current account at the moment, do they? They don't have a current account product. Credit cards in a big way, but... But not a, not a bank account, as no. it were. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I think that as they've got a huge market share, not necessarily in terms of finance, but in terms of, of people in this room, I guarantee at least half of them have been into a Tesco at some point in the last fortnight, if it was only for a bottle of water. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a captive audience there if, if you know how to do it correctly sympathetically and transparently. It's um, it's also, I guess, the fallout of a new CEO. You know, actually what we've seen is Benny Higgins step back and a new CEO come in and, what, six to nine months after that, sort of reasonably major changes happening in terms of the direction of the company. So uh, Making themselves felt. Indeed. Or maybe we're seeing Tesco's and the others like that making space for the Monzo's and the Neobanks, who actually will need those customers. And it, you know, we'd much rather have... Uh, people getting a mortgage from a bank that's going to provide a really nice modern banking service than just because Tesco needs to make a bit more customer lifetime value, you know? Mm, maybe. Well, 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 we'll keep an eye on that. And I'm going to keep an eye on Tesco and see see what they do next. Because that's, that's a large sum of money. I want to see what they do with it. I hope they do something interesting. Next up, we have a story about TSB and Square announcing a payments partnership. This came from Finextra as well. So TSB and payments provider Square have announced a partnership to make card payments more accessible for TSB's business banking customers, um, in particular that's small businesses. So the collaboration will give SME owners or SMB owners, depending on where you're around the world, um, fast, affordable and easy access to credit and debit card processing. So the bank's business customers will get a free Square reader, which is like a mobile point of sale device um, for in-person payments, and they will benefit for no processing fees on their first £1,000 worth of sales using Square. Uh, we spoke to Nick Harries, UK Partnerships Lead for Square, to find out more. Uh, we're going to hear from him now. Here at Square, our purpose is to drive economic empowerment by helping businesses of all types and sizes start, run and grow, beginning with accepting card payments. We believe no one should be left out of the economy because the cost is too great or the technology just too complex. And this is why we've partnered with TSB to make card payments more accessible for TSB's business banking customers here in the UK. By offering our Square card reader for free, which works with Square Point of Sale app, which has always been free, we intend to take away another barrier for TSB customers to start taking payments. On top of free hardware, TSB customers will benefit from no processing fees on their first £1,000 worth of sales using Square. So why does this matter? Well, In the UK, 3 million of the 5.9 million SMEs still don't accept card for many reasons, including costs associated, difficulty handling tech, and also just because they're in the habit of operating cash only. 
Yet from our recent cost of cash survey, we found businesses could be missing out on increasing their profits by up to 25% because they don't accept card. We're working with TSB to reach as many of their business banking customers to provide fast, intuitive and secure payment tools. We're always working to find new ways through our products, services and partnerships to make participating in the economy fair and accessible to more sellers. So you just have to watch this space for what's next. Okay, thoughts on this one from the room? I I think this uh, this is a really kind of inevitable kind of thing. You know, when I first joined at Transferwise, which was seven years ago now, a lot of people were asking, what's the future going to be? What's happening? FinTech, old banks, how's it going to pan out? And I always thought now, which I guess then was the future, would be uh, loads of partnerships. That's exactly how I always thought it would work. You know, the banks bring something to the table, FinTechs bring something else to the table. We are seeing that all over the place now. There's, it doesn't seem to be any single monopoly really forming anywhere. But it's, it's a completely new web of partnerships, which you know makes complete sense for TSB not to copy Square because Square's already built a fantastic product. So why the hell not partner up? It's it's interesting that I mean that Square have done this with TSB. You know, if you were going to do it with somebody, you would do it like TSB have been in their shell for the last nine to twelve months since all of the IT problems. It, like if I was Square and I was looking for distribution, I'd be doing this with somebody like RBS who've got more, you know, SMEs in this space, you know? But I wonder if TSB have a more, I don't know, a sympathetic ear to Square and that they don't have quite as many partnerships or fires in the iron. Fires in the iron? Irons in the fire. That, that red wine's kicked in, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. It's great. Um, We're keeping all of this in. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> nice. But I just wonder if, if TSB is, is maybe for somebody like Square, they do want to go for maybe a smaller partner who you know who has who has less other partners, less other distractions. I don't know. For for Square, it's just about distribution. You want as big an audience as many people with your squares in their hands as possible. You know. I mean the uh, you know the the deal doing cycle with the big banks is uh, is famously quite slow, and perhaps TSB after what's happened with its tech in the past, maybe mm. has a bit of a vested interest in doing something technologically cool and on the front edge. Maybe. You know? So like, maybe there's a little more willingness on their side, and they happen to be the first of many. And maybe this was the safer option for TSB rather than building it themselves, as you said. What I'm gen- genuinely interested in and quite excited the result of is this, whether this has an impact on the card payment uptake after that first £1,000 um, of, of free processing. Because I, d- I d- don't know the fees, so I don't know how much it's going to cost these customers after the first £1,000 of, of, of payments have gone through. But we talk quite a lot, or I talk quite a lot, I'm talking about SMEs, that we get quite London-centric and quite London-focused and think, well, they've got all these brilliant like business bank accounts they can choose from right now, and of course they all have iZettles. But, you know, if, if you go... For example, to Newcastle or Cumbria and you speak to somebody who's a, a, a plumber or a, a wallpaper or, or somebody like that, they, they don't have any means of taking those payments. Now, some of them won't want to take those payments, but some of them will just have no idea where to start. And they certainly won't think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go online and get this new fancy square product that you know, it's been advertised to me. Or even will I go to Tide or uh, any of those other you know, new and exciting SME banks, they may well already be TSB customers. So having something that's provided for them by their bank may encourage usage in areas we haven't seen it. And if it's done, as I said, sympathetically, if it's not suddenly the fees are going to rocket after that first, you know, um, uh, golden handshake has, has worn off, then I think that's going to be good for the economies in those areas, surely. I think what a lot of the 
industries, when you talk about SMEs who need to take card payments, kind of all look to the the big guys. They look to WorldPay, you know, um, and not so much actually iZettle or things, although I know a lot of cab drivers who are now using it on the sly. I don't think they're meant to. And I think where where this collaboration is really quite nice is um, TSB is not necessarily one of the bigger players, but the allowing something like a payment service, a, a merchant acquiring a kind of a solution for small businesses is, is absolutely critical. Because if you're, for example, if you're a restaurant, no matter where you are in the country or a retail shop, you you know you're, you're going to need to take car payments. I think where there's been probably more of a lack of uptake are people maybe providing more services, very much like you're saying, plumbers or cleaners even, uh, and things like that. I know from my own experience of... Um, uh, side business, which I know we spoke about earlier, but we won't take up too much time on the show, um, in the food business. So, for example, because I am a sophistic, uh, you know, considered a sophisticated person in terms of banking and finance, depending on who you speak to, um, I was able to build a website, get a payment gateway, you know, take payments electronically all on my own without anything. Whereas I know many other food providers who were running similar events uh, as myself, who came to ask me lots of questions because what they were doing were going to other sites, which I won't name, but who apparently do the whole thing for you, but take 10% off. Charge you a huge fee. Charging huge fees or other areas because they didn't have those skills and knowledge necessary. So having a bank who's able to provide you with that solution in a nice, neat little square. <laughs> can, can we can, can we just acknowledge that, Wincy? Can you just talk a little bit about the... Because like, we, we didn't talk about it. On, we were talking about it before, but talk about it on air. So like... Oh, um, sorry. Talk to, like... So tell us so, a little bit about your about what your side hustle is and about what kind of attention it's gathered. So, so, so I believe in side hustles. I think everyone that life is too short to be only doing one thing. You need to do many, many things, and I'm sure all, all the guys around the table here completely are, are those people. I love food. I absolutely think about it constantly. I live meal to meal, snack to snack. <laughs> so do we in the drink to drink. And I've had to divide up my social media accordingly. So uh, in terms of my my food obsession, um, my grandparents are from China, but my parents were actually born and raised in Burma. I myself, I was born and raised in, in New York, and I came to London about 10 years ago. And one of the things that I started missing immediately was the food I grew up eating, which was Burmese food. And I found that there were some shysters, I would say, in the industry who were selling Burmese food at exorbitant prices for what I felt wasn't what I grew up eating. <laughs> it's too probably me. Um, there's some really, really good ones. And, and actually, there are only a few restaurants in, in London that provide any kind of Burmese food. So one of my friends said, Wincy, you love cooking. Your palate's very good. You should try cooking. So, so I did. I, I started cooking. I started selling tickets. Before you know it, I upgraded. I had to move out from my home into restaurants, and I cook for 40 or 50 people at a time. And, um, and I was happily doing this when the BBC found me, picked me up, and, and uh, wanted to put me on a show called My Million Pound Menu with Fred Siri X. Uh, I do want to emphasize this is not a show that involves dating. 
Um, <laughs> so, and from there, then um, it's a series that Netflix um, picks up globally. So it has just recently launched this week, actually, uh, globally across all other countries that Netflix operated now. And that's your side hustle. That's my side hustle. Yeah. Some of us garden. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm tired just from listening. I'm really um, hungry. Like, uh, yeah, next time you can, we, we want samples. Hungry. Always hungry. Next time we have you on, we want, we want samples of this cooking. Absolutely. But let's move us on to the next story. It's sadly not food related, although there is a, there is a pun in there. European banking app Moniz partners with deposits marketplace Raisin. We got this story from TechCrunch. Um, so the new feature sees Moneys customers gain access to Raisin's cross-border deposits marketplace so that they can shop around for a competitive interest rate from the 80 European banks or 500 savings products signed up to Raisin. Uh, it'll initially be available to Moneys personal account customers in the UK, Germany, Austria, France, the Netherlands and Spain. Moneys now has over 1.4 million signups, claiming that customer growth tripled in 2018 and that over 100,000 people are joining Moneys every month. We spoke to Money's CEO Norris Koppel to find out more, so let's hear from him now. We at Moniz are always looking for ways uh, to simplify our customers' lives and uh, save them money. Our customers have been telling us uh, that they really wanted access to interest-bearing savings, so when they are on the go, their money is still working hard. And that's exactly the reason why we have been working on designing a savings product and uh, have been looking for a right partner for quite some time already. Uh, for this to be successful, we knew that we had to find a partner that shared our cross-border uh, and international focus and uh, had a complementary product market fit and perhaps most importantly, someone who could deliver on great rates for our customers. With this partnership, our customers are able to get uh, great savings rates wherever they may be in Europe, and also they can more easily manage their money all in one place. And I think the shared values, fast growth and broad international presence of both Moniz and Raisin demonstrates incredibly well how fintechs can bring more value to their customers through a deep collaboration. However, this is just a start for money savings. We will be offering our customers more choice on various saving products over the coming months. And in terms of partnerships more broadly, uh, we have had a wonderful year. We have announced uh, partnerships with Avios, PayPal, and now, of course, Raisin. We will also be launching PayPal in more European countries over the coming months, so watch the space. We have uh, some more interesting news coming down the track in mainland Europe. And uh, as we are in a process of making Moniz even more localized and tailored to our customers' needs in these countries. That was a tease, wasn't it? We've got more exciting things coming soon, but I shan't tell you. I like this partnership. I think anything that makes it easier, and, and Joe touched on this before, anything that makes it easier for customers to save money, gives them easy access, more discoverability, uh, more visibility of their money, I think it's a great thing. And it's obviously great for both Moniz and Raisin. I'm a huge fan of Raisin, by the way. I completely agree with you because I think what they did was they went into an area that was being particularly underserved at the time in which they did it. Um, I think, you know, being a German company and focusing on savings does actually make an awful lot of sense. But the way in which they've successfully brought that out, rolled it out, you know, their, their platform, from what I understand it, and I'm a not a technology person, but their platform is apparently particularly well designed to, to work with these kind of partnerships. And I'm also a big fan of Moniz. If you talk about their partnerships, you know, Avios, PayPal, well, I can't think of, you know, many of the 
other, you know, uh, fintechs that are offering you those kind of rewards. So in so doing that, they're carving a niche for themselves. Yeah, no, I think it's it's hard not to like both of these fintechs, like both in terms of like the figureheads around them, but also like the work that they're doing. Uh, monies have been around for quite a long time now, haven't they? They seem to have uh, slowly but surely sort of hoovering up more and more consumers and now more integrations. Like, you know, the fact that they're actually now talking about deposits and not just, you know, early days of monies was just getting people bank accounts who couldn't get bank accounts. So, you know, it's it's almost them coming to a different audience, I guess. I was just going to say that. And I think especially because Moniz was um, one the first bigger challenger bank that came out that was really focused on the foreign, or I don't want to say foreigners, but, but expats, <laughs> so to speak, or people who showed up um, from other countries without the ability to get bank accounts, much like you're saying, David. And so this partnership just makes perfect sense because you would expect that these people who take money's accounts have home countries and therefore want to be able to see that global access to mm. their finance. So I've been quite impressed with with monies over the years and we've as transferwise we've obviously been serving expats and people who are not you know perfectly served by traditional banks and um, I think they've done some really cool stuff. Yeah, this this partnership's a great idea. It definitely solves a real problem which uh, which customers are asking for uh, for a solution to. One thing that did cross my mind though unless unless I've wildly misunderstood the product offering is you know the savings rates which you can get around Europe uh, if you're sitting in the UK you know one percent one and a half percent if you're lucky you know pounds a euro could fluctuate more than that in a day and so possibly you could completely undo all the good of putting your money in a high interest savings account in the Czech Republic uh, if the pound tanks back and if you ultimately need to move your money back into pounds so it's like an amazing product launched at a really bad time when the pound is so volatile and could go either way. So, you know, across the Eurozone, amazing, where the, where the currency fluctuation and risk is is not a problem. Mm-hmm. But I would hope they're looking at like a hedging product or something like that, which can then make that not an issue at all, because, you know, that's the joy of working in a cross-border industry. Currency's going to move. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, sh- I'm sure knowing money is that they will have thought this through. I mean, um, both monies and Raisin are licensed in both the UK and in the EU. Um, Raisin does the sort of the authentication, if you like. So you get a bank account with uh, with, with one. Uh, so one bank authenticates you and then you're able to open these accounts across Europe. Again, there are questions if that will still be possible. If you look at the demographics, uh, two thirds of all money's customers are actually in mainland Europe. So if you're talking about, you know, who this product is aimed at, whilst us sitting here in the UK, I think that's great. I don't think we're the target demographic for this particular one, much as we love it. Yeah, exactly. You know, being able to put your savings in a, in a savings account in any other Eurozone country, fantastic product, unless you then need to ultimately move your money back into a different currency. Holding money in not pounds right now might turn out to be a good thing. Yeah, you never true. know. TransferWise can help you with that. Indeed, they can. <laughs> I think I've heard of them. And finally, this week, we teased it at the start, but LinkedIn's top 25 startups have been announced. So 11FS is featured. We're alongside brands such as Monzo, Starling, Revolut, Tide and many others. Um, We are seventh on the list, which is awesome. So LinkedIn came to this conclusion, if you like. Um, Here is a company that actually tells you how it got to its results. And I'm pleased about this. They uh, analysed employee growth, job seeker interest, member engagement with the company and its employees, and how well these startups pulled talent from the LinkedIn top companies list. So maybe we'll move that one to one side. But no, super exciting. Um, Rona, I mean, you're, you're up there as well. It's definitely a nice way to start the day. 
We've grown from 400 employees to 1,300 just in the past year, which is crazy. And we've got employees in London, in Cardiff, Los Angeles and Vegas uh, and a very large distributed team, uh, which we're very proud of. We all think that our employees are essential to Monzo's success and it's something that we really feel in everything that we do top down and all across the company. So very proud of that. It's uh, really nice to, I think, see the sort of camaraderie between the people who are on that list as well. So you had kind of lots of people from Revolut sort of celebrating it with Monzo and Monzo with Starling and Starling, you know, like throughout the piece, really. So it's great to see so many uh, fintechs on that list as well. You know, it just shows how hot financial services is in this space now that, what was it, 13 out of the 25, I think? were 12. 12 out of the so, like, that's in pretty impressive in terms of what we're, where we're at. Like, I was, um, I'm not going to lie, you know, seven, uh, I'm pretty happy with that. Sixth was like a Formula One car. Like, uh, that's pretty impressive as well. I'm not going to lie. The car? Yeah, like, it's somebody who literally does Formula E cars. So, uh, I have to say, the thing I'm most proud of is, I think we're out of the 25, we're the only one who hasn't taken VC funding. So, have to do all of that without actually having any money to start with i'm pretty happy with that so i think there's an interesting question around what's the definition of a startup yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's a great list to be a part of i think i think they said it's like anybody who has been created within the last seven years is essentially a startup and over Um, 50 people yeah they had a few conditions but um, which is weird isn't it because like i mean in the old world where things grew at a certain pace fine but within seven years you can do clearly do a lot you know it was unfortunate we're older than seven seven years old still very much identifying as a startup yeah and it's something that you've got to keep got to keep doing it you know no, no point growing up. Yeah, you don't get to eight years old as a company and just go, yeah, just we'll slow down. Yeah, yeah exactly. we'll, just, we'll just not bother anymore. It'll be fine, you know. Let the others have a go. Well, on that positive note, we are going to wrap up this week's news show. So thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Joe? Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Crosserton and also all of the normal TransferWise handles. Brilliant. See you there. Wincy? Find me on Twitter at Wincy Wong and also on LinkedIn. And Netflix. And Netflix, please. <laughs> I've never said that before. That's great. <laughs> Season two, episode five. Sorry. <laughs> Rona, how about you? LinkedIn is the best place. I'm a bit old school with my social networks. That's absolutely fine. David? Uh, at David Brewer on Twitter. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. So what did you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcast at 11fs.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and Periscope. For more content, just search Fintech Insider. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.